The Vancouver School of Theology is located on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. So welcome to Bruderholtz, the podcast of VST. Bruderholtz uh, is the name of a restaurant pub in Basel, Switzerland. It's a place where professors and students and interested parties would sometimes gather to talk of all things theology, religion, public life, that kind of thing. Hence the name. Bruderholtz, as a podcast of VST, is a place where you will meet faculty, hear from the principal and others, and it's been uh, just a fantastic thing that we've had a number of conversations with people connected to VST. Um, my name is Todd Weeb. I'm a host of Bruderholtz and friend of VST, and I'm here with the principal of VST, Richard Topping. Good morning. Good morning, Todd. How, how are you doing? Everything's just going great. Everything's good, yes. We're, uh, we're on a winter, sunny morning gathered at Bruderholtz, so it's kind of coffee time, I suppose, more than anything. Yes. But, um, and uh, Richard, why don't you introduce our guest for this episode? Yes, I'm glad to. Uh, our guest for today is the director of the Interreligious Studies Program at the Vancouver School of Theology and professor of Jewish studies at Vancouver School of Theology, Rabbi Dr. Laura Duhan Kaplan. And I think if I remember correctly, Laura may have been the first hire that I made when I became the principal of the Vancouver School of Theology. Um, and so um, uh, Laura's been there uh, ever since I began as, as the principal, and it's been a great, uh, it's been a great time for VST uh, through the programs that she runs for the school. Todd, maybe you could uh, pose a question to Laura. Well, we have, one of the things, as I was looking through, uh, Rabbi Laura, your, your work, your CV, all the writing and teaching and all other kinds of things that you've done, I was amazed, amazed by the breadth of it. And, and encouraged by the breadth of it. But so the first question really, really generally with some, of, and we'll get to not nearly all of that, but some of it. Um, and you can help kind of direct us towards what you'd like us to ask about as well. But so generally, first off, how long have you taught? And why do you teach? Well, first, I'm delighted to be here. So thank you, Todd and Richard for this conversation, wherever it is going to take us. <laughs> Second, I really appreciate you saying something positive about the breadth of what I've done, because I always have the worry that if I'm too interdisciplinary, I don't fit anywhere. So I'm delighted that I fit at VST and that you framed that in such a positive way. Third, the question you actually asked, I have been teaching higher education for about 30 years. And within that time, there were about 20 years when I was teaching all ages from preschool through uh, seniors in residential care, through Hebrew school guest lectures, and occasionally as a middle school specialist teacher. So I have quite a strong experiential sense of many different kinds of learning and learning styles. And I try to bring those 
as appropriate into the graduate student classroom. Do you have any um, favorites is too big of a word, right? Because it makes people think like, well, then she's not interested in this uh, in us or something like that. But the range of people you've taught just in terms of age uh, is, is as, it's as broad as it can get. Um, what, what, what do you find really compelling in there? You know, you teach preschoolers or you teach people in care facilities. Tell us about some of the differences and how that enlivens your teaching. Well, I like every age group, so you don't have to worry about (laughs) favorites or not favorites. I mean, grades seven and eight are pretty challenging, (laughs) but, you know, there are ways around that. Uh, What I love about the youngest children is that learning is so embodied. So it's fun. You get right down there and do it with them. What I like about the most elder learners is that um, first, because of their understanding of respect for their own wisdom and expertise, they approach Mm. um, the teacher with the respect for their expertise and they listen quite carefully before they respond and ask you questions. And very often they have many life experiences that are connected with whatever it is you're talking about or doing together. So it's, an, it's enriching at every level. So Laura, lately you're teaching at the Vancouver School of Theology, which um, as you mentioned is a, you know, a classroom is diverse to say the least. We have people from many walks of life and people who wanna do a variety of things with the education that they're getting. Um, what's exciting about your subject matter and your students in your, in your current work at VST? Well, my subject matter is excitingly diverse. In interreligious studies, we have courses that not only introduce students to different religious traditions and different spiritual traditions, but uh, we also have courses about how to approach difference and multiculturalism. So in a way, there is never a dull moment. (laughs) Plus every class, Um, You don't know in advance what traditions and perspectives will be represented. So actually, um, as a teacher, that is very exciting because um, as I plan and prepare the classes, I'm pretty sure I'm going to misstep somewhere in the process, but I never know exactly where that will be. And there's always a component of learning for me when students say, well, let me tell you about my experiences in that tradition. Mm. Let me tell you in my country how interreligious dialogue looks or doesn't look. Mm. So one of the exciting things is in a way, I'm one teacher among many in the graduate classroom. I was going to ask about that because looking through your work, uh, one of the things that strikes me about uh, as a friend of VST and someone who's benefited greatly from the teaching there, um, writing that comes out of there, is that you, you've done a lot of collaboration with other members of the faculty at, at VST or some significant collaboration in terms of uh, 
books on or writings on race relations and reconciliation and um, tell us a bit about that how kind of working together with other members of the faculty has has been well first one of the great things about VST is the colleagues the faculty are all extremely engaged with teaching they're extremely engaged with their research and even when we teach core courses we are always changing them and upgrading them so we're constantly learning and there's a way that we are like a think tank together right uh, we have mm. one way of teaching a course and then we have a conversation with a colleague or we hear about their experiences in the classroom and we say oh my gosh there's this whole other body of literature or this whole other approach that we haven't explored yet so it's kind of a natural think tank. And so what I'm really doing in working with colleagues is taking advantage mm. of those learning opportunities. And people have different areas of expertise. For example, I've team taught with Jason Biasi and Jason is one of the most delightful, spontaneous learners <laughs> and conversationalists. So in the classroom, of course, we prepare in advance, but something happens in the conversation yeah. together with the group that is really just um, magical. Yeah, it brings that life, and, yeah, that whole other level. Yeah. yeah, and Harry Meyer, for example, is a really, really experienced academic scholar. So to collaborate with Harry on a scholarly anthology or a scholarly book series, I get the advantage of his clarity, mm. uh, his experience, and also his uh, calm. Because whatever's happening in the project, yeah, he's seen that, he's done that, it's gonna be fine. <laughs> Laura, tell us a little bit about this, uh, um, your work with Ray Aldred uh, on the Canadian race, uh, with the Canadian Race Relations Foundation and this publication that came out, I think last year, uh, Spirit of Reconciliation. Yeah, Ray and I worked together on this resource. The idea came from the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. They approached Ray initially, Ray is our Director of Indigenous Studies, they approached Ray and said, they would like to create some kind of resource for religious communities and spiritual communities across Canada to encourage a diversity of faith traditions to participate in reconciliation. Because obviously it's natural for the churches that operated residential schools mm -hmm. to actively participate in reconciliation, but such a really important transformative social movement doesn't happen unless all parts of the society participate. So their interest was how do we encourage other communities to participate? And so Ray, of course, reached out to me and said, well, Laura, you're the one with the contacts in the different mm -hmm. faith communities. Um, let's try to get a group of writers on board to each talk a little bit about first reconciliation in the idiom and the language of their faith tradition. And second, to talk about what they have 
actually done in that area that other communities mm-hmm. in their tradition can uh, copy. It's it's part of your um, responsibility at VST as well, like the, the director of interreligious studies. And I know that you run and oversee a conference each year, and there's a lot of other work um, uh, along the interreligious aspect of what you're doing. Uh, tell us about how some of that has benefited your teaching or led to some of these connections. Just comment on the interreligious aspect of what you do. Sure. So interreligious studies does not only take place in the classroom. But one of the goals of interreligious studies is to connect our students with um, leaders and practitioners of other faith traditions so that when they are out in the community and there is some kind of initiative that they need to collaborate on, whether it's a challenge they need to respond to or some really terrific idea for improving their local community, they will actually Mm. know someone and they can pick up the phone and call them, or maybe that's outdated. They can send them an email and say, help me get started. Who do I reach out to in your community? Is this something, for example, that our youth can do together, etc." So one, go ahead, Todd. Oh, sorry. I, I was going to ask about that. Have you found, like, I, I'm coming from a background in terms of my growing up that was kind of evangelical background and and fairly in some ways close-minded and if I had said a number of years ago as a young person or something that I was going to an interreligious um, studies conference or something like that that would be like oh that's you know have you found a shift there in terms of um, how people are approaching the interreligious work that you're doing is there a greater openness in general across the board has it shifted from you know when you started doing this kind of work to our current context? Well, I've only been at VST, first about the historical shift. I've only been at VST for seven years. And before that, the interreligious work I did was in the U.S. Bible Belt. Yeah, so there, so, so <laughs> right where they would say the same things. Yeah. There were some limitations yeah. there. Uh, so I can't talk about whether I see a shift in my personal practice, but I do think that in Canada, there is a greater openness because, and I'll qualify this in a minute, but for the most part, there is definitely a greater openness in general to the project of multiculturalism. Partly it's because um, so many children are just growing up with it. It is simply right a feature of life for young adults and middle-aged adults, uh, partly because people on all levels of policymaking understand that the health of our country depends on welcoming new immigrants and making Canada a hospitable place for them. And there is also, for the most part, a great understanding that when people bring cultures, they also bring religious traditions and practices. So there is much more openness to finding out what those practices and beliefs are and to understand how to make public space for this diversity. Mm -hmm. At the same time, of course, Um, In some communities, particularly um, 
more rural communities or communities at the center of the country, there is also a backlash against that. Mm -hmm. So we also see some more retreats into a narrow kind of nationalism mm -hmm. or ethnic chauvinism. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about VST is that we clearly take a stand in favor of multiculturalism. And in that sense, um, our teaching is activist mm. in interreligious studies. And so is our active outreach to students from all around the world. Laura, just to follow up a little bit on that, um, thanks for that. So you, you've talked about one of the ways in which VST is kind of unique. There's an ethos of outreach and social engagement, uh, interreligious education, working with our neighbors. What are, what are some of the other things? Uh, a rabbi teaching at a Christian theological school hasn't always been the case. Um, <laughs> Although we've often taught about a Jewish rabbi, <laughs> um, but but are there other are there other things that are unique about the way in which VST works? Well, I'll start with the uh, making a hospitable environment for people who are not Christian or former Christians, putting a toe back in to Christianity, mm -hmm. or people who are exploring, particularly those who join the spiritual care uh, programs. I came to VST originally in 2007 as a student wow. in the spiritual direction program, which was then one of VST's programs. And that was during the time that I was working in Jewish communal service as a congregational rabbi. And I chose VST primarily because I wanted to make new friends from a different religious community. And I felt that the faculty, while of course making sure that I learned the curriculum of the history of Christian spirituality and the various spiritual practices and the tradition of the mystics, particularly in the Middle Ages, while they made sure I learned that, they also went out of their way to see how I could integrate my own tradition into assignments, for example, um, even in class presentations, I was encouraged, not pressured, but encouraged to draw analogies between the Christian practices or bring information from my tradition that answers some of the same existential questions that we were exploring mm -hmm. so that the classroom became, well, now I'm shifting from my experience as a student to my experience as a teacher. Mm. But when you do that, the classroom becomes a place for even more expanded learning. And one of the things that was most profound for me as a student, learning the language of Christianity, which is not to say that it was completely new to me. I mean, I grew up in a Christian majority culture and um, I was a philosophy professor mm -hmm. in North Carolina which some people uh, say is the buckle of the U.S. Bible mm -hmm. Belt, but there's actually a lot of places vying for that uh, <laughs> title. Um, but this was my first time learning the theology and at a deeper level, and it was my first time engaging in Christian spiritual practices with that 
a full openness of practicing with the practitioner, believing with the believer so mm. that I could learn. So one of the things that was most profound for me was learning a new spiritual language, translating into a familiar one, right? Growing in my understanding of the familiar one and then translating it back so that I understood a Christian context even more deeply and experientially without affirming Christianity is my tradition, but with really understanding it and growing to love it. Mm. And just to say something about what happens in the interreligious studies classroom, that happens all the time in our classroom as like students hear from one another, grapple with new material, have those aha kinds of experiences. They really deepen their own spirituality. Both uh, you and Richard mentioned um, your work in in congregational life, uh, Rabbi Laurie, your work um, in the synagogue. And I was looking through, as someone who was pastoring for a number of years, uh, I looked through just the description of that, that you were responsible for spiritual life, worship, education, pastoral care, organizational vision, and staff supervision. As someone who used to be a pastor in a church, I just went, oh, right, that's, that's exactly what it is. Um, but uh, one of the things that's a blessing to me in, in terms of connecting with faculty and others at VST is that there is a close connection to congregational life as well, that it's not kind of the academy off at a distance. Um, Maybe you could tell us about how your work as a professor and academic writer uh, has been informed by your work in congregational life. Yes, absolutely. Well, here is kind of an odd thing to start with, but I will start with it anyway. <laughs> so my first PhD is in philosophy, technically philosophy and education. I negotiated an interdisciplinary degree at my university, hmm. but it's in philosophy. And I taught philosophy for many years. And one of the things that they teach you in graduate philosophy courses, and they teach it to you because so many of the famous philosophers said it, it's that asking the deep existential questions is something that only a few chosen, elevated few in the world can do. Right? Only us higher intellects mm -hmm. who can grapple with philosophy explore those questions. And then, not that I believed it, right. mind you, right. but then you come to congregational life and you mm -hmm. learn through pastoral care that everyone mm -hmm. on the planet is asking those questions. Sure, for some people, they're present to mind and heart all the time. For other people, they only come up at times of great um, crisis mm -hmm. or joy. But everyone is asking those questions all of the time. So it's important in the classroom, even though sometimes we're introducing complex ideas at a graduate level, it's really important in the classroom for us to always be aware of how these big ideas are going to show up in the personal lives of the people that we'll be working with. Mm -hmm. I had a picture of it when I was listening to, um, it was a philosophy, a PTR podcast, um, but you briefly mentioned that you had lost a, a 
dear friend to COVID and that you officiated service. Um, and I, you know, you can picture what that, and of course in, in these COVID times, um, I've lost loved ones during this time as well, not to COVID, but had been unable to go to services. And so I, I pictured, you know, that officiating and I thought that's such a, a, a practical description of the kinds of things you just spoke about that, that, um, all of those questions find kind of find their existence on that day in that place in that place of mourning and lament and, and goodbye and all of these other things. And so it really struck me that you were blessed to be able to do that, uh, even, in, even in the midst of such loss, and to see someone who's helping people grapple with these big questions in terms of religion and philosophy, but then living it right on the ground level. Um, it was a really, really interesting picture. I think, look, uh, Laura, is that one of the ways maybe uh, VST, well, we, we, we do study religion, we call it interreligious studies, but in the context of a kind of theological school, that, that nuances what we mean by religious studies a little bit. Have you found that to be the case? Well, I found that VST or faculty at VST are very careful to say that we don't teach religious studies, we teach theology, mm. but we do not mean by that that we refuse to read anything written by anyone with a godless perspective. Yeah. <laughs> what we mean by that is that we don't study it as a detached mm -hmm. academic looking at something that someone else does. Mm -hmm. We study it and explore it as um, a really, really important tool, not only for our personal growth, but for the work that we're going to do. Because people in our society, even people who, I, I don't wanna step on anybody's toes here and misdescribe people in a way that's different from them, but people who affiliate with religious communities, which is about one third of Canada, people who consider themselves spiritual, not religious, which is about one third of Canada, and even some of the people who don't consider themselves religious at all. We have religious and spiritual discourse as a really important part of our culture. Right. And so when people approach us um, in the work that we'll do as chaplains, as teachers, as ministers, they will be asking those questions and hoping to be addressed in those religious categories. And so we need to understand them both um, intellectually and experientially. Yes, thanks. Laura, you, you've talked about, I mean, the great breadth of things that we do at VST. We're not a huge school, we're a growing school, yeah. um, but, um, and that creates, uh, you know, lots of things for all of us to do. One of the questions I wanted to ask you is, what do you think the biggest challenge, I mean, you could even say the biggest opportunities that you face uh, as a professor at VST and as the director of interreligious studies? Uh, what start, are but the, start with challenge. the growing edges of things? <laughs> asks the prince. Yeah, I was just going to say, <laughs> start with challenge, says the non-principal. Well, one of the challenges, of course, is that we're a small school. And every person who's part of VST, principal, faculty, staff, 
we all have really great ideas about more creative things we can do educationally and in the community. And sometimes it falls on Richard to say, I think you're doing enough. Let's just keep doing it the same way for a little while. So, you know, one of the challenges is to be in a place filled with creative people and have lots of ideas. Right. And practically speaking, we can only implement some of them. So that's a bit of a challenge. Um, you know, there's another challenge that is not so much a VST challenge, but it's a challenge for me personally. And maybe I'll speak a little bit about it, if that's okay. And that is being the only non-Christian on the faculty. Mm -hmm. I sometimes feel like I'm always riding that edge of difference mm -hmm. or of being other, not in the sense that um, anyone leaves me out of things. Right. No, in fact, if they left me out of things a little bit more, I'd have a little <laughs> bit less work. Um, but just in the sense that I am always aware that the spiritual language that people are speaking, while I understand it, and I even find myself speaking it sometimes, mm -hmm. it's not my primary spiritual language. And when I leave work, not that leaving work is a concept that makes much sense in COVID time, mm -hmm. but um, when I leave work and I spend so much time in the Jewish community and doing things with the two synagogues that I'm a member of, it's a different language. So I'm very aware that I'm crossing these boundaries all the time. And sometimes I find myself in situations where I feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And those are the times when I remind myself that that is part of the inner work of being interreligious. It's part of the inner work of being multicultural. And in fact, I'm not the only one who's doing it. We're all doing it all of the time. And so that's kind of a challenge that at least once a week I face and go through a little inner process of turning it into a blessing. Oh, that's really well described. That mm -hmm. the nature of communities and that there is this community at the school and clearly you appreciate it and benefit from it and you you're a blessing to it as well um, but the limitations of that community as well when you're when, when there's this otherness that is always kind of there even as you're relating well together I would assume that your work with the you said two synagogues you're uh, connected with uh, that's all been same thing as us with the church has all been by zoom and how has your experience in those communities in the religious communities that you're a part of how have you seen it impacted in the last number of months well it depends what the number you're talking about is because summer and right. through the early fall high holidays, we had the opportunity for doing some things outside right. and gathering in small groups. And there was a very excited feeling of, if this is what it's like, we can get through it together. And these last few months with the more severe lockdown measures, it's starting uh, to wear on us right, to not be together with people in person and me, for me personally to not be able to read physically from the Torah scroll in synagogue. Mm. 
But let me say something that's not just about me personally, because as you probably know, I was part of a multidisciplinary research group at UBC. The principal investigators were Michelle LeBaron and Magid Senbel from the UBC uh, Law School. And this was a research funded by the Peter Wall Institute. And we looked at um, the impact of COVID-19 on religious communities and the successes and failures in government communication with religious communities in different countries and places. And I looked particularly at two things. I looked at what happened in British Columbia during the initial months, which did really, really well compared to so many other places. And I also looked at some of the conflicts within religious communities. And one of the things that I collected some data on, primarily from Jews and Christians, but not exclusively, one of the things I collected some information about was the impact of the lockdown on clergy, right? How, and I'm not even talking about the worship services now, but I'm talking about the challenges of maintaining communication with people who are isolated or having a difficult time, uh, the challenge of making the building and its symbols available to people and trying to juggle all of that, the challenges of small communities, which rely on a lot of volunteer energy and the ways that volunteers can engage are quite limited. And then in particular, here's something that really hurt my heart uh, to hear about, and I have also seen it. And that is the number of times a congregant has pressured a clergy person to say, can we just make this one exception to the rules for me? And the person is always asking out of a good intention, you know, we'll make the life cycle event uh, better. Um, we really need for more people to be present yeah. at this funeral, the, those kinds of issues. But what the congregants don't realize is that given a highly transmissible virus and the role of the clergy person, the exception just for you ends up impacting the whole community, right? Because if the clergy person says, okay, I can visit you on your outdoors on your porch yeah. while I'm wearing a mask and the you come to the person's house and their, yeah. you know, brother opens the door for you and says, oh, why don't you just come uh, in? It's just totally. us. Yeah. You, the clergy person, are the vector for the entire community, right? And once you've made one exception, you are bringing the virus to the entire community and having the clergy having to explain this over and over again and having to be like police officers, in a sense, enforcing the public health measures in addition to the adaptation, in addition to carrying yeah. the emotional and spiritual... Trying to keep uh, that religious handles. community afloat and going and not yeah. knowing, and it feels tenuous for mm -hmm. for leaders, for clergy, at, sometimes at the best of times, let alone not mm -hmm. knowing how to measure things or whatever. It's, uh, right. it's and really the, interesting what you're speaking of, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. the other thing that 
people who perhaps don't work in religious communities probably can't grasp is that like church isn't just a thing that happens on Sunday and synagogue isn't just a thing that happens on Saturday. For people who are very connected to their religious communities, it's like a full service organization to them. Mm -hmm. It's their social club, yeah. it's their arts club, it's their spiritual place. It's where they get support for everything that they are going mm -hmm. through. And for the clergy person and a handful of volunteers, and most places really are like a clergy person or a half a clergy person and a half a staff person. Mm -hmm. Most religious communities are mm -hmm. small. That's a lot to carry okay. during a lockdown. Thank you for that. Uh, it, your description of the uh, of the uh, uh, priest being the police person, um, I was resonating with that. Uh. <laughs> yes, uh, sometimes the principal has to do that at the school as well. Um, Laura, to turn the conversation just a little bit at this point. Um, so, so uh, we, we've talked a little bit about COVID. Um, the school is online, and enrollment is good at the school just now. I mean, classrooms are filled with with learners, people who have time that they didn't have before to, to be a part of our learning community. And so, I mean, part of that has made me sort of a bit hopeful uh, about things. Um, what, what It's a two-part question. What's your most spectacular delight as a teacher right now, and, and what makes you hopeful? Well, I think my most spectacular delight is seeing how much the students are excited about remote learning mm -hmm. and how as I remake my uh, class, I'm only teaching one class this term because I'm also preparing another one of those interreligious conferences. Mm -hmm. But as I remake my class for the online environment and try to use creatively the limited capacities of Zoom and the less limited capacities of our online learning system Canvas, the students have so much compassion for that. Sometimes they have helpful suggestions, sometimes they leap right on board and they use the technology as I suggest. And that creates a really upbeat mood in the learning community. So I really, really appreciate how eager the learners are. That's one thing that makes me hopeful. Yeah. Another thing that makes me hopeful is even online to see the magic that is happening yeah. in my interreligious studies class this term. The class is called Sacred Texts and Oral Traditions. And it's really a survey course. Now a survey course at the graduate level is challenging because someone's going to be a rank beginner at at least one or more parts of the course so right how do you balance mm. being introductory with also being um, deep and elevated and teaching them the scholarly terms that they need to know but that aside um, the course is a survey introduction to sacred texts and oral traditions in indigenous traditions, Jewish traditions, Islamic traditions, and Christian traditions. Mm -hmm. I have 40 students enrolled in the course. Mm -hmm. 
I have never had that number of students enrolled in the course before. So it's quite large. There's a huge interest. We have students who are Christians. We have students who are Jews. We have students who are indigenous. We have Baha'i students. We have a Hindu student. And we have some students who define themselves as spiritually seeking. So there is an amazing magic that is happening in the classroom. And the chat box on Zoom <laughs> actually makes have, this even um, have you more guys... helpful because I might be talking about something and then a student whose tradition it is will say, well, we do this and we do that, but yes, what um, Rabbi Laura said, but there's also the question about blah, 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 and it isn't like that everywhere. And you know, I don't allow the chat to distract all of us, but I pause and check in with it at certain points. Mm -hmm. And it's an amazing, rich conversation that happens. And so the hope is partly in the power of that exchange. And the hope is partly in how excited the students are to learn in this mode. Uh, That's really good. Laura, where are the the students located? I mean, uh, do you know a little bit about where they're coming to the class from? Well, we do have a few that are quite local. We have a number that are in different locations in Canada, like Calgary and Ottawa. Mm -hmm. We have some that are Zooming in from Indonesia. we have at least one in the class who's zooming in from Hawaii. Very nice. So, it, so it's do you guys, broad. as as people working at um, an educational institution, I would imagine these questions are at every educational institution. Is, is there any going back for you guys? Like, I, I imagine these questions aren't answered yet, Richard. That you know, classes didn't have Zoom before, and now you're going to have in-person classes again. Thanks be to God when the day comes. But uh, can you give up on the Zoom or are you going to have to kind of have both? Well, Laura can talk to this, but we were already online. We were already holding hybrid classes. So Mm. in the past, probably in most instances, the majority, maybe two thirds of the class would have been in person, one third online in most courses that that would be a little bit different in some. So um, we're grateful that we had that technology in place when we needed to make this shift. It made it easier for us than some places, but summer school, for example, uh, I don't know. I mean, we, we, it's all online. We didn't have online summer school. Mm. I don't know that there's any going back on that. It just, yeah, and, and students people. are ready for it now. What, what, what do you think, Laura, about um, uh, online education and, and what, where we'll go in the future with that? I think that we'll probably go back to the hybrid classes because I know some students and all of the faculty um, would really love the in-person contact. And there are things you can do in person that you can't do online. For example, I teach a course on ritual and sacred ceremony. And so much of that is embodied and interpersonal. So um, Mm -hmm. course will be great once we're able to be back together for at least part of the course. But I think we'll probably go back to the hybrid classes. And one of the gleanings will be that previously the hybrid classes were mostly geared to the group that was in person with a few adaptations for the distance. With an awareness that some people were watching kind of, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and we we made ways for them to participate. 
But now we will all be skilled in both kinds right. of education. So I think the hybrid classes will That's be great. much better. And even the students in the classroom will be better at going with the flow of right, utilizing both. The other question about, um, is there any going back, which is why I laughed, was <laughs> is there any going back on our increased enrollment yeah. and increased enthusiasm yeah. no. around that? I'm sure that Richard has faculty knocking <laughs> at his door and staff knocking at his door saying, this is fantastic, yeah, really but is. how are we going to... Um, Keep up the momentum? Yes, and hand yes. and handle the growth. It's a great yeah. question to have. I had a I had an adequate question. I mean, I've taken some courses as well online or or attended a seminar or something. And you mentioned the chat function. It's clearly something that we're still learning the etiquette and what the etiquette will be. Because I've pictured myself in an in person class and thinking that anybody can just shout out anything they want at any time. Because sometimes that's how chat's used, right? Like the <laughs> stuff's going on in this movie. There's a book by so-and-so. It's not a question. It's not a comment. Nobody's raised their hand. It's just that chat is just flying like crazy. So it is realizing how much uh, professors have to deal with too in these adaptations that we're learning kind of on the fly, right? But, uh, but they definitely also provide some fantastic interaction that doesn't always come in the in-person stuff. So there's a couple of things I wanted to just, before we close, we didn't get a lot of chance to speak about this other aspect of the breadth of your work, which is your work as a professor of philosophy at the University of North Carolina. And all I saw all the writing and teaching you've done there. Um, and I, we won't have time to talk about it in depth, but it, it also adds another interesting layer to me in terms of the kinds of people who are teaching at VST. And again, the the um, wealth of experience that's there um, in terms of, so for you, in terms of how that has informed what you're doing now as well. So people can um, find out much information on that and, and and uh, walk that trail in terms of what you've done. I had a list here of some of the courses you've taught. You mentioned sacred text and oral traditions, but just to go through, um, and this is this is only a sampling, uh, spiritual perspectives on death and dying, interreligious views of the end times, that sounds fascinating to me, um, religion and violence, gender and sexuality, spiritual formation in Jewish communities, introduction to Jewish thought, philosophy and biblical interpretation. This is the kind of thing that you're teaching. It sounds fascinating to teach, um, but definitely fascinating to learn as well. Uh, any, any other things to share either in terms of your, your work uh, teaching philosophy uh, or anything else that has informed what you're doing at VST? Oh, you know what else I wanted to ask you about? Sorry, uh, your books. Your books. You have, um, you have a book that's um, coming out, or is it out now? Mouth of the Donkey, Reimagining Biblical Animals. Tell us about that. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so that's about 15 questions that yeah, you I asked. Know, I and did. plus, I think Richard was also wanting to reassure me that we are absolutely positively going to cope beautifully with the growth of the school. Um, <laughs> he just gave a thumbs up that you can't hear great. in Bruderholz. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'll answer the question about the animal book. So that comes out of really about 10 years of very close readings of sections of Hebrew Bible, sections of Tanakh, where animals were characters or otherwise significant actors or motifs in the stories. 
And I was interested in that because I love animals, mm. something which I inherited from my mother and seemed to have epigenetically absorbed and transmitted uh, to the next generation of our family. So it comes out of these close readings. And the close readings are informed by a number of assumptions. One of them is that the texts of the Torah, certainly at the very least, the ones that are in the five books of Moses, were originally oral stories. And you can see markers of that in the ways that they're written. And as oral stories, they drew very heavily on the ecology of the mm. places where they were told and a community of listeners where you assume the listeners had familiarity with the local creatures because they were part of life. And if you have enough information right, about the animals to understand who they were to the community receiving the story, granted it's all part of our historical imagination to reconstruct that, but if you have that, then you can understand the stories and what the animals are teaching us in a very different way, right? Because in modern interpretations, um, we very quickly default to seeing the animals as metaphors or uh -huh. symbols of some human trait. And that is, of course, always a valid reading. But there is also a reading that is sort of more sympathetic with ecological concerns and more honoring with uh, the indigenous approaches to story that we teach in our programs here. And those can really transform your perception of these stories. Oh, thank you. And thanks for answering one, <laughs> all of the lists of questions there and, and course descriptions or titles and everything. Uh, Principal Topping, any other questions you have for us or comments before we close? No, I just want to say thanks so much to Laura for being with us today at Brutholz and uh, for uh, providing us with such a rich conversation. And uh, thank her as the principal for all the great work she does for our school. Mm. Well, what a great time to be together. Thank you again so much. And I know you, well, we're all in various Zoom locations and everything and been dealing with that. But uh, it is really fantastic to have these conversations. Our hope is that those who are listening, particularly those who are not familiar with VST, get um, a greater appreciation for the kind of institution that it is and the blessing that it is in this community and, and far afield. So thanks to everyone uh, for participating. Thanks to both of you, mm. Todd and Richard. I'm delighted to be part of this podcast and I'm delighted to be part of VST. Thanks so much. Bruderholtz is a production of the Vancouver School of Theology. For more information about VST, visit vst.edu. Thanks for listening to Bruderholz. Holtz.